This is the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, and today we have episode 15, The Advent of the Mycenaean Galley. I truly apologize for the delay in getting this episode out to all of you. It wasn't really a planned delay, and although I recently moved across the country after finishing law school, and it's just been a really weird summer career-wise and the transition that I'm in right now, that all didn't help to begin with, but then to compound matters, I really did struggle writing this episode in particular. I've rewritten it several times now, and I just was never happy with how it turned out each of those first few times. So I hope that what it's ultimately resulted in here today was worth the delay in the end. I'll go ahead and let the gracious listeners, you, be the judges of that, though. In our last episode, we looked at the Amarna letters, dated to around 1350 BCE. They gave us some insight into the devolution of the commercial ties and the balances of power that had existed previously in the Bronze Age. We had a smattering of glimpses of the Mycenaeans, a people who had emerged as a maritime power in the late Bronze Age. Today, we'll zoom in and take a closer look at the Mycenaeans and the archaeological and written evidence for their maritime exploits during the latter stages of the Bronze Age. To get the ball rolling today, let's again set a time frame on just where we are in history. The Minoans began to peter out within a century of the Thera eruption, which has been roughly dated to 1628 BCE. The Mycenaean people, or their predecessors if we're being technical, had been present in small numbers on mainland Greece since Neolithic times. However, it wasn't until around 1600 BCE, after the eruption, that the mainland occupant began to expand in earnest. This time frame marks the transition from the Middle Bronze Age to the Late Bronze Age. In Greece, we call this period the Late Helladic Period. As has been the case with the Minoans, the Hittites, and several other civilizations from this period, next to nothing was known about the Mycenaeans until the archaeology boom of the mid-19th century. We'll consider the accounts of the Trojan War at some point in our discussion, but for now it suffices to say that the mythos of the Trojan War led first to the discovery of the city of Troy in Anatolia, the famous discovery made by Heinrich Schliemann. After finding the city that had until then been considered mythical, Schliemann turned his attentions toward discovering the opponents of Troy as they were described in the Homeric epics. He began to dig in Mycenae in 1874, and although other archaeologists had previously unearthed artifacts belonging to the Mycenaean people, Schliemann was the first to uncover the shaft graves whose occupants were buried in their golden war armor and lavish decor that could only have belonged to a royal personage. Although Schliemann famously mistook those artifacts as belonging to Agamemnon himself, the Mycenae shaft graves are now accepted as dating to the 16th century BCE, 
making them the first indication of a Mycenaean civilization that had finally blossomed into a true power. By 1500, the Mycenaeans had begun establishing power centers on the Greek mainland. Their culture was that of a warrior people, but this didn't stop them from trading with the other cultures around the Mediterranean, a trend that saw them expand trade throughout the same period that the Minoan influence began to wane. By 1450 BCE, or thereabouts, the Mycenaeans had fully supplanted the Minoans on Crete, and had even begun to establish colonies around the Aegean and the eastern Mediterranean. You could almost say that the Mycenaeans stepped into the shoes of the Minoans, to a degree. The Minoans had at one time connected the early Mycenaeans to the culture and trade of those around the Mediterranean. This, therefore, helped the Mycenaeans in their early development. Sadly for the Minoans, the Mycenaeans repaid the favor by kicking the Minoans when they were down, and taking control of their cities and their trade routes. Such is the natural order, I suppose. Knowing the extent of Minoan trade and maritime reach, we shouldn't then be surprised to learn of the extent to which the Mycenaeans were known in the late Bronze Age world, even though they'd only been on the scene for a relatively short time. To get a better idea of the Mycenaeans' reach, let's again return to a name and a time that we've visited several times now already. Amenhotep III ruled in Egypt in the early 14th century BCE, and the Colossi of Memnon bear his image as they stand imposingly at the entrance to Amenhotep's mortuary temple. We've talked about these same enormous statues once already, back in episode 10, where we considered how exactly the Egyptians would have been able to transport 720-ton statues. Anyway, I mention the Colossi of Memnon again for an altogether different reason this time. That is, because the temple that they overlook also contains evidence of the Mycenaean people. This evidence exists on what was once the base of a smaller statue of the pharaoh, a base that now sits in a row with five other similar bases of stone block. The particular base that we're interested in is the last one in the row, a bearer of two time-beaten stone feet supporting nothing but air now. It's the inscription on the base that we're focused on anyway, so the pharaoh's absence isn't all that important. For some help in explaining the purpose and significance of this statue base, I turn to the words of Professor Eric H. Klein of George Washington University. In his book, 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed, Professor Klein says the following. Each of the five bases is inscribed with a series of topographical names carved into the stone within what the Egyptians called a fortified oval, an elongated oval carved standing upright with a series of small protrusions all along its perimeter. This was meant to depict a fortified city, complete with defensive towers, hence the protrusions. Each fortified oval was placed on, or rather replaced, the lower body of a bound prisoner, 
portrayed with his arms behind his back and bound together at the elbow, sometimes with a rope tied around his neck, attaching him to other prisoners in front of and behind him. This was a traditional New Kingdom Egyptian method of representing foreign cities and countries. Even if the Egyptians didn't actually control these foreign countries, or were even close to conquering them, they still wrote the names within such fortified ovals as an artistic and political convention, perhaps as symbolic domination. Now, whether it was intended as a symbolic domination or not, similar New Kingdom fortified oval lists mentioned all of the big civilizations and cultures of the time. The Hittites, Canaanites, Assyrians, Babylonians, and Nubians were all on the main landmasses of Africa and the Middle East up into Asia Minor. These names fill the first four bases found at Amenhotep's temple, but base number five contains names that were a bit further removed, not by pure distance necessarily, but removed because of a water barrier. I hope you'll agree with me by now that water wasn't all that much of a barrier to these ancient peoples, and in many cases it was a tool that they used to accomplish things they couldn't otherwise have achieved. But it's still surprising to see the names that were chiseled into base number 5. The names are arrayed along two sides of the base. On the front we find the head names, separated by a dividing line. These two main names are Keftiu and Tanaha, the Egyptian terms for Crete and mainland Greece. These names appear in other places from a similar time period, so their correct interpretation is pretty much accepted across the board. After the dividing line on the base, it lists a handful of specific cities within the main regions of Keftiu and Tanaha. In order, they are Knossos and Amnisus, followed by Phaistos and Kydonia, all cities that were tied to Minoan palaces on the island of Crete. The island of Kythera is then named, an island that lies in the Cyclades, roughly equidistant between Crete and mainland Greece. The list then names Mycenae and a Greek mainland port city, now Pleion, followed by Messenia and what is possibly a reference to Thebes. The list concludes with more names from Minoan Crete. Klein calls this list the Aegean List, and he interprets it as being evidence of an Egyptian voyage during Amenhotep III's reign. Because the first list of Cretan cities progresses from east to west, and the second list of Cretan cities progresses from west back to the east, he feels that the list is evidence that the Egyptian ships made a round-trip voyage to mainland Greece and then back to Egypt. If true, the Aegean list would be our oldest indication of a major Egyptian voyage to the Aegean and to Greece proper. Although we know that the two civilizations had traded frequently, it's been generally thought that the Minoans and other merchant classes from coastal cities were responsible for the actual shipping. 
Anyway, Klein buttresses his argument for the Egyptian round-trip interpretation by pointing to the presence of numerous Egyptian objects at four of the cities mentioned in the Aegean list. These objects, objects like scarabs, seals, and a vase, are important because they all bear the cartouche of either Amenhotep III or that of his queen, an imprint that ties them directly to the temple base inscriptions of the Aegean list. Perhaps even more significant are the presence of nine foundation deposit plaques at Mycenae, all nine bearing the royal title of Amenhotep III. Foundation deposit plaques were likely used as objects to bury inside building foundations to serve as a reminder to the gods of the identity of the builder or the patron who provided the finances, along with a record of the building's date. Now, these foundation plaques at Mycenae are highly significant for this reason. No other such plaques bearing Amenhotep III's title have been found anywhere else outside Egypt. Ultimately, we can only draw thin conclusions from the Aegean list and from the foundation deposit plaques at Mycenae. They don't give us much insight into the extent of the contact between Egypt and Mycenaean Greece during the early 14th century BCE, nor do they illuminate the impetus behind the contact. They do, however, tell us simply by virtue of their existence, that the contact between Egypt and Mycenae at this point was unique, and that it existed. I'll leave the discussion of the Aegean list and the foundation deposits with Klein's final thought on the matter. He reminds us that the dynamic at this time, roughly 200 years removed from the theory eruption, was that Minoan power was almost completely gone, and that Mycenaean power had newly arrived and had begun to spread. Archaeology reveals that trade and the import of Egyptian and Near East goods had shifted from Crete to mainland Greece, almost entirely so. Could the Aegean list indicate an Egyptian diplomatic voyage to affirm connections with an old and valued trading partner, the Minoans? and to establish relations with a new and rising power, the Mycenaeans? It's an intriguing interpretation, no doubt. Although the dating of events that I've encountered so far in my research seem to indicate that the Minoans had declined, and that the Mycenaeans had taken over operations on Crete by the time of Amenhotep III. Either way, Dating and relative chronologies in the Bronze Age Mediterranean are really hard to wrap my mind around, so Klein's interpretation is instructive, at the very least, and it provides a nice, tidy way to view things. Now, I'd imagine that if you chance to read the title of today's episode before you pressed play, you might be wondering about the absence of galleys to this point in the discussion. I'm here now to allay your fear and to inform you that the wait is over. Let's go ahead and talk about the galley. First things first, I can't put enough emphasis on this main point, and with time, as we see how it plays out in the ancient world, I'm sure you'll see why I feel it to be so important. 
The point I'm so bluntly emphasizing is this. The invention of the Helladic Ord Galley is seen by many to be the single most important advance in the weaponry of the Bronze Age Eastern Mediterranean. As we start to look at some of the pictographic evidence for the Mycenaean Galley from the late Helladic period, you'll begin to see how the structure and the function of the galley differed from the structure and function of the more graceful, multi-purpose ships like those depicted in the Akrotiri fleet fresco. Bottom line, though, is that the advent of the Ord Galley and the Aegean is super important to the rest of history. As we now move to look at some iconographic depictions of Mycenaean ships, I feel that I also need to give you this caveat. The Mycenaean period is a bit messy when it comes to chronology and just placing things in a specific context. So this discussion will be a bit more broad than some of the other peoples and periods so far. But once we've talked about the depictions as a whole and seen the advent of the galley as a ship style, the transition from Mycenaean Bronze Age to the Iron Age will give us plenty of fodder for further discussion. Ship depictions and artistic representations from Mycenaean locales are numerous enough that we can't really hope to cover them all. So I think that we can talk about the common traits shared by the numerous depictions to help give us a good overview. What it all comes down to with the Mycenaean contribution to maritime technology is this. They seem to be the originators of the Ord Galley style ship, the Triaconter or the Pentaconter, that's become synonymous with Greek maritime culture of classical antiquity. I'm sure that galleys like the Pentaconter and their successors like triremes and biremes will pop up more frequently in the episodes of the near future, especially those once we get into classical antiquity. So I won't dwell too heavily on them right now, but let's at least get our feet wet by talking about the transition from Minoan to Mycenaean ship types. In terms of concrete proof, the period of transition from Minoan to Mycenaean dominance in the Aegean is a bit murky when it comes to proving which ship types emerged when, and relatedly, when the earlier types began to fall out of favor. We know that the Minoan ships were predominantly crescent-shaped, the sleek and graceful ships of the Akrotiri fleet fresco. The Mycenaean galley is certainly not an adaption of the Minoan ships, as its design radically differs from the Minoan style. So we're left a bit in the dark about how and why the Mycenaean galley style originally emerged. At the least, we can safely assume that it wasn't an outgrowth of a gradual evolution in style, since the style is such a drastic departure from anything previous to it. If anything, the Mycenaean galley seems to indicate a shift from the all-purpose ships of the Minoans to a more purpose-built galley. The Minoan ships were adaptable to both the purpose at hand and to the conditions, with various purposes ranging among the transport of troops, goods, or even simply the fast movement of a lightly loaded ship. Sails took advantage of good weather conditions, but oars were available if necessary, 
for help entering and leaving harbors or surmounting foul weather. The Mycenaean galley-style ships, however, were engineered to serve a more narrow purpose. Yes, they contained a mast and a sail, but the lengthy narrow hull and the prevalence of the oar-powered propulsion emphasized speed while sacrificing wind power and storage capacity, making them important parts of the warlike pursuits of the Mycenaeans, the Achaeans, and the Greek peoples all down through their history. With this main distinction in mind, let's now look at some examples to see just how the structure differed and how the Mycenaean artists normally depicted their ships. The common depiction style for the Mycenaean galley, at least early on in its lifespan use, has come to be known as the horizontal ladder depiction. This label is pretty accurate, as some of the more earlier depictions are centrally focused on what is just a ladder, drawn horizontally instead of vertically. Now obviously the artists also added a sail and the necessary rudder or steering oar, and generally also included a prow with some type of decoration. But the horizontal ladder section is what typifies the late Helladic depictions of the galley. Take for instance a ship that's depicted on the side of a Larnax that was discovered at Ghazi on Crete, and dated to the 12th century BCE. This ship depiction is little more than just a large sail added atop a horizontal ladder, but it conveys the idea quite clearly. The ladder itself sits on top of a more thickly drawn hull. There are 27 vertical rungs to the ladder, one of which is the mast itself, so in total the artist seems to have been depicting a galley-style ship with 28 rowing stations. Perhaps the artist's loose and somewhat inaccurate depiction of a pentaconter, a galley rowed by 50 men, 25 to a side if we assume the depiction to only be showing one side of the ship. Maybe the Ghazi Larnax depiction was not the best one to look at, though, despite its place as the largest depiction of such a ship found to date. And just a small interjection here, if you're curious, a Larnax is a small coffin box or an ash chest used as a container for cremated remains throughout ancient Greek and Macedonian history. A more informative depiction was found on a late Helladic period Pyxis, a type of pottery container that was usually cylindrical and decorated with an elaborate design. The specific depiction was found in a Thalos tomb at Tragana, a location on the southern part of the Peloponnese, I wasn't able to locate a decent photo of the actual artifact, but I was able to find a good copy of the ship that's depicted on the artifact. So if you didn't see the episode artwork for today, head to the website to check out what the ship looks like. The best way I can think to describe it is as being both beautiful and crude at the same time, if those traits can coexist, that is, which I think they can. The horizontal ladder structure contains 24 vertical rungs, which would give 25 rowing stations to the ship, here a perfect depiction of a pentaconter. There's a steering oar, or quarter rudder, on the stern, 
which appears rather large in comparison to the ship itself, though, as usual, the artist's rendition doesn't necessarily equate with an accurate rendition of the artist's subject. Realism wasn't quite in vogue yet, if you know what I mean. Also worth noting, even though it isn't our focus today, is the bird figure that sits on the ship's stem, a theme that we'll begin to see more and more frequently as we move further into classical antiquity, that is, the inclusion of animals or other figures on the stems of warships especially. Last but not least, the ship does also contain a sail with rigging lines coming from the stern near the quarter rudder up to the sail and mast. Our final iconographic depiction, though certainly not the only other one out there, comes from the archaeological site of Kynos in central Greece. The Iliad in particular names Kynos as the home of Ajax the Lesser, the same man who supposedly led a 40-ship contingent of Locrians against Troy during the Trojan War. Actually, Kynos and Ajax are listed as part of the Catalog of Ships in Book 2 of the Iliad, and, well, why would I pass up an opportunity to read from the Iliad when I have the chance? This is what Homer said about Kynos and the Locrians, and then we'll look at the depiction unearthed at the site. Homer said of the Locrian forces was the fleet-footed son of Oileus, the lesser Ajax, by no means so much man as Telamonian Ajax, but the lesser by far. He was slight of build, and the corslet he wore was of linen, but with the spear he surpassed all Hellenes and Achaeans. His followers lived in Kynas, Caliaras, and Opus, in Bessa, and Scarfi, and delightful Algii, Tarfi, and Thorium, and about the waters of Boagrius. With Ajax came forty black ships of the Locrians, who live just over the straits, from holy Euboea. Now, as for the depiction itself, it could be said to be the best depiction of a Mycenaean galley that we have discovered yet. The ship depiction on a potsherd shows close to the entirety of a galley ship, though the stem and any decoration it may have held is cut off. We can see the nearest end of the quarter rudder, but that too is cut off. What we're left with is still very revealing, though. A helmsman, apparently unarmored, stands near the stem of the ship, while two armored warriors are shown on the deck of the ship, shields and spears raised. These warriors reveal what we know to be true from the later use of the galley. It was a fearsome weapon of war, and continued to be so during the whole of Greek history. Structurally, the ship on the Kynos Sherd is close to what we've seen. A thick hull in the typical galley fashion is the base, while the warriors and helmsmen stand upon the ship's deck, and what appears to be a small forecastle. Again, the things that sit between the hull and the deck are what deserve the most attention. They appear to be almost half-circle shapes, some attached to vertical rungs, like those on the horizontal ladder-type depictions. 
while they might be confusing or vague in and of themselves, were aided by the fact that oars project from beneath the ship's hull, presumably beginning at the bottom of these semicircle shapes, extending into the water below the ship. Now, I don't want to get lost in the minutiae of the arguments behind this theory, but some archaeologists have theorized, based largely on later depictions of a similar nature, that these semicircle depictions were intended by the artist to show the men who were rowing the galley itself. There are 19 semicircles in total, so we could assume, like we've done already, that the artist set out to depict a pentaconter, but ended up making poor use of his canvas. The completion of the theory, then, is that the heads of the rowers would have extended up to where the deck is shown, so the artist chose to leave the heads of the rowers out. And there are similar later Greek depictions of galley rowers with their heads behind screens, giving the impression that their heads have disappeared. I think the rower theory for this depiction is pretty valid, but if you're curious, you can read more about it in the Mycenaean chapter of the book Seagoing Ships and Seamanship in the Bronze Age Levant, a marvelous resource that I've gone back to a few times now. To this point, then, we've seen three iconographic depictions of the galley that developed following the emergence of the Mycenaean peoples. They were nice, and they were helpful, but the hands-down best resource for info about the galley during this period comes from where else but Egypt. Maybe you're tired of hearing about things from or connected to Egypt, but the region is a key area for info from the ancient world, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but the arid Egyptian climate and the ancient occupants' penchant for entombing all sorts of things has been of great benefit to our modern attempts to illuminate the past. This latest item from Egypt was discovered in a tomb in Gurab, a city on the Nile in Lower Egypt. As has been the case with a few different Egyptian artifacts so far, this ship model was originally discovered in 1920, and briefly written about at the time of its discovery being described as a model boat of a pirate ship on wheels, perhaps to serve as a child's toy. The artifact was pretty much ignored until an archaeologist rediscovered it recently and undertook to write about it in detail. Now, one important aspect of this model, apart from the fact that it's the oldest model of an Aegean-style galley, is the fact that it was painted before it was buried, which gives us a really rare insight into the way in which ships may have been decorated in the ancient world, and especially in the ancient Aegean. The structural characteristics of the ship are fairly similar to the depictions we've already talked about, though the practical building of a physical representation probably required the builder to make some adaptions. There are stanchions along either side of the hull, the rungs in the horizontal ladder iconographic depictions, and although there aren't 24 of them to accurately depict a pentaconter, nor are there 25 oars on either side, dots along the hull are thought to represent oar ports, 
as the number and spacing align with the 25 oars per side layout of the Pentaconter galley. This model also contains a stem post, like the depictions already discussed, but it's not entirely clear that an animal was intended to be part of the design, as it frequently was in the other depictions I mentioned a minute ago. The coloring, though, as I said, is the important part on this model. The hull was painted with a white base layer, while black was then painted over the bottom half of the hull, and a red stripe sat above the black half and dissected the white portion. The significance of this paint job, I guess I'll go ahead and call it, is discussed by Geoffrey Emanuel in his lecture entitled Odysseus's Boat? New Mycenaean Evidence from the Egyptian New Kingdom. Emmanuel is a CHS fellow in Aegean archaeology and prehistory at Harvard's Center for Hellenic Studies. In his lecture, as you may have gathered from the title, he makes some very insightful connections between this ship model and the Homeric references to the ships of Odysseus and the Achaeans. This is another topic that's been written about heavily, and part of me wants to spend hours talking about the Iliad, the Odyssey, and how we can use them to inform our view of Mycenaean and later Greek history, but I'll try to hit the high points. As Emmanuel points out, Homer describes the Achaean ships as black, something you may have noticed when I read the passage earlier from the Iliad. Homer also calls the ships of Odysseus in the Odyssey red-cheeked. Homer refers to black ships at least 80 times throughout both the Iliad and Odyssey, so it must have been a common appearance of ships on the Aegean and the Mediterranean at the time. Emmanuel takes these references to black ships to allude to dark-colored pitch that would have been used to coat and seal the hull planking of the wooden galley-style ships. As we've discussed so far, this shouldn't really surprise us. Pitch sealing of the hull became a necessary part of keeping a ship seaworthy, and it was done in one form or another for the entire future history of wooden ships on the seas, even to this day. Think back to the bitumen coating on the reed boats of the Ubayid people, way back in our first episode and you have the same idea here at play. That, then, is the bite-size importance of the Gurab ship model, and its tie to Homeric references to Achaean galleys. Dr. Shelley Walkshman is a scholar of nautical archaeology of the Near East and has written an entire book covering his theories about the ship model and its possible relation to the infamous Sea Peoples. I'll leave those possible ties until we talk about the Sea Peoples here soon. But in a nutshell, just to whet your appetite, it seems that the Sea Peoples adopted the Achaean galley ship style as their own, and used it to devastating effect in the century and a half following on the heels of 1275 BCE or so. That would certainly be a tough pill to swallow for the Mycenaeans, since they were the original developers of the galley that was apparently used later on by the Sea Peoples. We'll get to that in time, however, and really it won't be too far off now. The late Helladic period, which covers most of the Mycenaean presence, 
and disappearance from the Aegean is a tough one to look at chronologically, like some of what we've already talked about has been. Today we've seen the main purpose of the galley and its main methods of depiction in the historical record, but dating, chronology, and a coherent narrative for the historical period now and in the next few episodes to come are perhaps better left to other podcasts entirely. I think we're at a good point to call it quits for today, but don't worry. I have some material already lined up for the next few episodes, so there shouldn't be too much of a delay. We have a few highly informative shipwrecks from this period, namely the wreck at Ulaburun, a site uh, off the Anatolian coast in the Mediterranean, along with another wreck off Cape Galadonia, a site in a similar location. We've also got some material on the way related to a mythical ship from the period, one that I think would make for a great episode to discuss some topics about the role that ships played in Greek mythology, along with a modern reconstruction of a Greek galley ship. I'm toying with the idea of making that episode a member feed type episode, as I'd like to be able to put more of my focus into the podcast. However, that is a bit hard to do with little to no return on my investment of numerous hours in research and production. I should say little to no financial return, because I've really enjoyed producing this podcast. I'm quite grateful for those of you who've already supported my efforts to date, and I hope you understand that I'm just trying to take the podcast to the next level, so to speak. I'd likely do this member feed episode and all the rest through Patreon, barring any better suggestions, so those of you who already support us on Patreon would only have to check out the feed there for access to the episode once it's out. After those two episodes, we'll then move on to look at the fall of the Mycenaeans and the conflicts of the Sea Peoples with both Egypt and the other peoples of the Mediterranean. As you can tell then, we have a ton of material on the horizon, and I'm really excited to share all of it with you in the near future. Before I wrap up completely for today, I also want to say thanks to the listeners who've kindly left five-star reviews on iTunes since the last episode. Those listeners are Captain Frog, Sandy Beach, RJS Chats, I hope I said that right, and History's Bone, a name that I'd be kind of curious to hear the story behind. Thanks to each of you for the reviews and for the support. My last item for today comes in the form of a short book review. I'd like to also start doing these on a somewhat more regular basis, and I think I'll go ahead and post longer versions of each review as a standalone post on the website, where I'll make a separate category for book reviews. Anyhow, today's book is Medieval Maritime History by Charles D. Stanton. Published by the Maritime Imprint of Pen and Sword Books, this book is a treasure trove of information on the topic indicated by the title, a volume that I anticipate returning to frequently once we start discussing medieval maritime history in some more depth. And even though we haven't arrived there yet, I really enjoyed perusing the topics that Mr. Stanton has included in the book. The volume is confined to the medieval maritime history of Byzantium, 
and Europe. So look elsewhere if you're interested in the maritime exploits of Asia, or even beyond during medieval period. That being said, the area which the author chooses to focus upon is covered quite thoroughly and in a fairly concise manner. The endnotes are skillfully documented, something I always look for in a quality volume of history, not to mention the fact that they are great sources for pursuing further research. So that also pleased me with this book. As for the meat itself, the author has deftly organized the book into ten chapters, each chapter a focus on a separate period of conflict on the seas of the medieval world. Stanton further divides these periods into the differences of maritime conflict between northern Europe, involving the Vikings, English, and French, from the conflicts of southern Europe, involving the Byzantines, Muslims, Normans, and even the Crusades. Each period and region is illustrated by the author's reconstruction of a key engagement based on the historical documents that are available. I especially appreciated, and I'm sure I'll come to appreciate even more so, the author's focus on a wide range of issues related to medieval maritime history. Issues such as the ships themselves, their navigation, the naval strategy and battle tactics behind their use, but even social issues such as the crew who would man a ship in the medieval world, and the living and fighting conditions for a crewman on board the ships. Basically what I'm trying to say is that if you're interested in medieval maritime history, you'll be hard-pressed to find a more informative and better organized volume of medieval maritime history as a whole. If you're interested in the book, look for links in today's show notes and for the review once I get it posted to the website. That then brings things to a close for us today. Keep up with the podcast news and updates on Facebook, where we have a group for listeners and fans of maritime history, or on Twitter if you prefer that route. If you're curious about ways to support the podcast, also feel free to check out the site or look for us on Patreon. Until the next time then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>